We're continuing in this series that we started a few weeks ago called All Things New. Uh, we are in the Easter Tide season. It's a 50-day season that stretches from Easter morning, Sunday, Easter morning, to Pentecost Sunday. It's 50 days in which we, we rejoice and we celebrate and we worship all that God is doing in the world, all that he is doing that is new in the world. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started this series and we talked about where our focus is on like, what is it that God is doing exactly? <laughs> like when we say things like that, that God is transforming and changing and bringing hope, like what exactly does that look like in the world? What does it look like in our lives and in our church? A couple of weeks ago, we kicked off and we said the thing that God is doing in you and in people is he's making them holy. And he does this by changing our hearts, changing our desires, that we desire the things that God desires. Uh, last week, we talked about living into a new kind of story. There's many of us who live in, in stories of shame or brokenness or hurt, and the invitation to you is to come and be part of God's story, be part of a story of forgiveness, be a part of a story of grace, be a part of a story of hope and healing, and not just God's story, but be a part of this church's story, which is a story of mission and outreach and focus on the world that deeply needs Jesus. And this morning, I've titled my sermon, A New People. Uh, it's kind of going to be in two parts. This week will be a new people, and next week will be a new family. But I want us this morning to catch a glimpse of the kind of people, the kind of community that God is forming in his church this day. And to ground us this morning, uh, I'm going to read from the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. If you want to grab one in the chair in front of you, I'm just going to point those out. Our new chairs have shelves, which is great. Um, but you can grab one of those. I'm going to be starting in verse 19, and I'll be reading to verse 32. If you grabbed one of the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 1153, 1153. I invite you this morning, church, to hear the word of the Lord. So the Pharisees said to each other, you can see that nothing is going right for us. That's right, Pharisees. <laughs> Look, the whole world is following him. There were some Greek people too who came to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover feast. They went to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip told Andrew and then Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus said to them, the time has come for the son of man to receive his glory. I tell you the truth, a grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die to make many seeds. But if it never dies, it remains only a single seed. Those who love their lives will lose them, but those who hate their lives in this world will keep them true, will keep true life forever. Whoever serves me must follow me. Then my servant will be with me everywhere I am. My father will honor anyone who serves me. Now I am very troubled. Should I say, Father, save me from this time? No, I came to this time so I could suffer. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've brought glory to it and I will do it again. The crowd standing there who heard the voice said it was thunder, but others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, that voice was for your sake, not mine. Now is the time for the world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world will be thrown down. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people toward me. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. Uh, uh, this past Thursday, Thursday is Levi and Emma's favorite day of the week because it is trash day. And this past Thursday, when I picked up the kids from childcare, the trash man had not yet come to pick up all of the cans in the afternoon. And we were fortunate enough that the trash man actually was on his way or was kind of taking all of the cans on our street and had broken down on our street. And so when we drove onto Huntington Avenue, Levi and Emma lost their minds that there was a trash truck parked on the street. And so we walked over and we talked to the gentleman who was there and he was telling us that the truck had broke down. He was waiting for a mechanic to come and fix it. And so we went and got him a cliff bar and some water. And I was like, all right, let's go home. And Levi was like, no, we need to stay here till the mechanic comes. And so we sat there for a good 45 minutes waiting for the mechanic to come. Emma was a little less interested at that point. But when the mechanic finally came and Levi had just harassed this, <laughs> the guy who works to drive the trash truck, like, what's wrong? What's going on? What's the problem here? What's that all liquid dropping on the ground, right? Once the mechanic came, you could tell like the trash man was like so relieved, like somebody who's not for to talk to. And when the mechanic came, he started... They started speaking to each other in Spanish. And Levi looks at me and he goes, are they speaking Spanish? And I was like, they are speaking Spanish. And so Levi, the only Spanish he knows is how to count to 10. So he starts going, uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, ses. He loves Spanish. He's just so enthralled by it. We watch YouTube videos in Spanish all of the time. And I'm like, do you understand what's going on? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, you have no clue what's going on, right? But he loves speaking in Spanish. A few weeks ago when we joined our, uh, our church there in Oxnard, they came here for a Good Friday service. Wasn't it so good to worship in Spanish, to sing some songs, to remind ourselves that this church thing that we're doing is not a homogenous thing? On our Easter morning service, there was a gal who came. She, was, she had gone to Westmont College, grown up at Pasadena First Church of the Nazarene. And so when she came to Santa Barbara, she came to the Nazarene Church there in Santa Barbara. And, and her and I developed a pretty close relationship. And she's Armenian. For those unaware we have a pretty, pretty, we have a number of churches that are pretty strong on our district that are of the Armenian people. But when she came walking down the hallway here, I was like, what, what are you doing in California? You live in New Jersey. You, you know, you're going to seminary. You're, you're becoming a chaplain, actually. She's training, doing a residency. She's like, oh, I'm in town. You know, I just figured I should be at a church service on Sunday. So I thought I'd pop in here because you're here and all that. And as we talked in recent weeks, just kind of reflecting to catch up of what's going on, I, I realized that she actually became very much involved with this nonprofit that's advocating for the Armenian people. For those unaware, about 1915 in Armenia, there was this attempted genocide on the Armenian people. And so at that time, a lot of folks from that community and from that nation, they started immigrating all around the world. And one of the places where they congregated pretty densely was in Pasadena and in Glendale. I remember when I did a, a chaplaincy uh, internship in seminary, I, I did a, the Glendale Seventh-day Adventist Hospital. And it was like three quarters of the people had, had the, the last three letters of their name were I-A-N, Ian, right? That's how you know somebody's Armenian. Like Kim Kardashian, she's Armenian. They don't claim her, but she's like of Armenian descent, right? 
But they congregated here, and so they have this really profound sense of like wanting to, to continue to, to hold on to their culture and be a people. And so this is why we have these Armenian churches on our district that are part of our church. But it's just so interesting, the Armenian people, is to observe kind of the way that, that they try and, and live in the world today. Like if you watch them, they're, they're trying in many ways to keep alive a, a particular way of life, a particular culture. And now that they're like second, third, fourth generations here in America, there's this weird tension of trying to resist the sort of genericizing force that is American culture that they would just assimilate into the American culture. See, it's a, it's a really odd thing to watch this culture, this Armenian culture that, that was not defeated by violence, try to resist being defeated by assimilation. And it's important for them to try and find this balance of like, what does it mean for us to be Armenian even though we live in the United States? So many of them, for example, they have two names. They have names that you know, English speakers like us would not be able to pronounce. And then they have their sort of common name that they use so that many of us are able to talk to them like John or Debbie or something like that, right? In their culture, it doesn't just survive in the names that they give their kids. They, it survives in just the food that they prepare, right? Every time we go to district assembly in Pasadena, I'm always like, we got to go get some great Armenian food because these are like our people and I love hummus and all these types of things, right? And this morning... With that sort of in mind, in the back of your head, I, I want to just honestly, I know I probably do this way more than just this morning. I want to drag us into the deep end of biblical theology for a moment. And we're going to talk about the whole of the scriptures again from Genesis all the way to Revelation of understanding what does it mean for us to be the kinds of people that, that God is trying to form in his church. So venture with me into the deep waters here for a moment. So the first book of the Bible, Genesis, the first 11 chapters of it, 1 through 11, can be really difficult for many of us to try and understand in many ways. Genesis 1 through 11 is what we might call a prehistory history. There are several stories that are found in Genesis 1 through 11, but we might think of those, those stories as kind of falling in three kinds of stories. The first we know is the creation story and the fall. It's kind of one set of story. Then you have the, the flood story and Noah. And then you have this third story, the Tower of Babel. And there's scholars who just wrestle and grapple with like, what are these stories all about and where did they come from? Because when you think about it, when you step back and you think, there probably aren't a lot of firsthand eyewitnesses who saw the creation event, right? Nobody's sitting there watching. I mean, for the first five days, at least, there's no people. And so how do these narratives, how do these stories, how do these events get recorded into the scriptures? Where do they come from? Why are they in Jewish culture? And there's a number of scholars that argue that what we find in Genesis 1 through 11, there are stories that are passed down from generations to generations, but the ones that we have in the Bible come from around the 5th or 6th century B.C., in this time where, where Judah, that's the tribe of Israel, has been taken into captivity in Babylon. 
And as they're being taken into captivity, into Babylon, they're beginning to ask questions like this, like just like our Armenian friends, is, is how do we enter into this nation? How do we enter into this empire and not lose our identity? How do we resist just like waking up two, three, four generations down the road and not being like, we used to be the people of God who lived in Babylon, but now we're just Babylonians. How do we maintain our distinctive identity as the people of God? And so these stories actually, scholars suggest, become a way for God's people to shape the way that they think about themselves and their identity. So a couple weeks ago, right, we talked about the creation stories. Well, these creation stories aren't the only one from ancient history. And so we talked about how really in ancient cultures, there's two categories that we might think of creation stories. There's the stories where, where people are God's warriors and there's people, uh, other stories where people are God's workers. So we either fight and battle for God or we are slaves to God. And our creation story comes in the midst of these other creation stories like, no, actually, creation is an act of love and joy for God, and we're created to reflect God's image into the world. We can do this with Noah and the flood story. There are are other ancient flood stories, if you didn't know. Almost all major cultures have some sort of flood narrative that's told in them, but there's this Tower of Babel story, which is absolutely fascinating for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons why it's so interesting is that word that we translate Babel in Hebrew is actually the exact same word that we translate as Babylon. So many scholars suggest that it's more, this story is more than just an ancient empire that tried to build a tower to the heavens, which ended up being a futile effort. Is what they suggest is that what might actually be going on in this narrative, the Tower of Babel narrative is It's a way of critiquing what's going on in Babylon as God's people are held in captivity. See, this is the problem, is that when you live in Babylon, the problem is that people are trying to squeeze you into the cultural mode of Babylon. They want you to become Babylonians. So you speak Babylonian language, you eat Babylonian food, you observe Babylonian customs, you worship Babylonian gods... They're trying to get you, in other words, we might say, to pledge your allegiance to Babylon. And so the critique of the story is this, that that God's people are are living in a culture that's seeking unity, but the, the way that Babylon seeks unity is through uniformity. Everyone has to be the same. If we could all be the same, wouldn't that be great? If we all spoke the same language, if we all fought alike, if our families were exactly the same and we understood all those dynamics, if we all recognized that Mother's Day was a great day, not a bad day, right? Like there's all of these things. If we were all the same, maybe it would be so great we could build a tower to the heavens. But this sort of thing is just, it's not just futile. It's sort of arrogant to say that your way is the way. Now you could sort of take this reading if you want, but the, the reading then is this, that God's judgment at Babel is not a judgment of wrath, it's a judgment of grace. Now, if you don't want to buy into my interpretation of the Bible, I'm going to persuade you just one little bit more, right? If you fast forward in several books later in the Old Testament, there's this book called Daniel that many of us are aware of. 
this exact thing plays out this exact same way. There are four main characters in that story. You have Daniel and his three friends, right? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, But when they are shipped off to Babylon, they're given new names. Belshazzar, and then the three that we're probably all familiar with, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Which is interesting that we don't remember their Hebrew names at all. But we remember their Babylonian names, right? It's fascinating. But all throughout the book of Daniel, there's this tension that exists between Daniel and his friends and the culture around him. The king of Babylon is trying to get Daniel, hey, you need to worship our gods. You need to eat our foods. You need to pray in a specific kind of way. And the story that's told in Daniel is Daniel and God's people's resistance to becoming Babylonians in his time. So back to the the Tower of Babel story, right? So scholars argue the judgment at Babel, the diversification of languages, the separation of the nations, the emergence of multiple cultures that happens from that story is actually not God being angry. It's a judgment of grace. Because much like in the creation story where God makes birds that are all different kinds of birds and sea creatures that are like sea monsters and scary things and you have plants of all different kinds, God has actually made people to operate in the same way. That there's different kinds of people, there's different kinds of languages, different kinds of culture, and none of that is a bad thing. In fact, it is a good thing. And the call to the story is for God's people to resist assimilation into the culture by becoming uniform with everything that is around them. They need to remain a distinct people in the world. And the reason why that's so important is because As the scriptures progress, there's this imagination that emerges in the biblical story. There's a sense in which God's people at a time, they do think that that unity is only possible through uniformity, right? And so there's this story of God's people entering into the promised land and like, you're not like this, we're just going to wipe you all out. But this is not God's vision or dream for the world. About the sixth century, there's there's this prophet who embodies this this sort of vision that God has for what it means to be the people of God. His name is Isaiah. And in one of the most, I think, compelling, attractive chapters of the Bible, Isaiah imagines this time where there is peace in an otherwise divided and separated and broken world. Oh, kind of like the world that we're in now. He imagines a world, he says, where where the wolf and the lamb can lie down together, where the leopard and the small child can play, where the ox and the bear will graze in the fields together. And then he says this in verse 9, he says, they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, the beauty of this passage is that not that we find unity and everyone becoming an oxen. The beauty of this passage and the compelling vision isn't that we all become leopards or sheepy kind of people buying our way around in the world. The compelling imagination here is that the lion and the lamb, the kids and the ox, the bear and the leopard, they will live peaceably together in their distinctiveness. And if you read on in Isaiah... You get to chapter 60, the end, towards the end of the book, 
where there's this picture, this, this vision that Isaiah has of the holy city of Jerusalem. It says that the holy city of Jerusalem is, is where the glory of God is. Remember that language from our text this morning and from Isaiah 60. And what happens because the glory of God is in Jerusalem, because, because Jerusalem is a light to the world, there's this picture where all the kings of the earth, they bring their people into the holy city of God and there would be a multiplicity of languages and cultures and food and music and dance and worship. This picture where you have tacos and pizza and burritos and sushi and lumpia for all my Filipinos and you have hip hop and reggae and rock and and Mozart and even Taylor Swift is welcome into the holy city of Jerusalem because everybody and everything is welcome into God's city. And that the vision there in Isaiah 60 is that, that all of the treasures of the world, all of the treasures of the cultures of this world are drawn by the light of God into the city. And God is glorifying by this God-honoring diversity in the holy city of Jerusalem. Now this gospel text that we read is this passage where Jesus comes to his disciples before he's going to the cross. And he says he's going to lay down his life in Jerusalem. Ironically, the light and the glory of God will come through God crucified. But we picked up the text in verse 19 because the whole text there is bookended by these two statements. The first statement is by snobby religious people that we call the Pharisees. And they're like grumbling about what's going on around Jesus. Like, ah, this guy over here, the whole world is following him. Doesn't he know this is just for us? Which in the next text, the next verse is great. Then, then John tells us like, yeah, and all these Greeks, they began to follow Jesus, right? The Pharisees hate that. And the text ends at the very in there in verse 32 where Jesus says and if I am lifted up I will draw all people unto myself the glory of God in Jerusalem seen in the crucified Christ draws the whole world unto himself it's almost like there's this theme throughout the Bible and if we fast forward to Acts chapter 2 there's this event that we, we know as Pentecost. It's this scene where the disciples of Jesus, they're preaching to a crowd and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they're preaching, there's people from all over the world that are there. There are Elamites and Parthians and Medes and people from all over Mesopotamia. And they all hear the disciples preaching in their mother tongue and language. For a long time, I, when I read that story, I thought, I thought that this story... The miracle of this story was in the speaking. <laughs> I thought it was like coming from the mouth. That is, my thought was like somehow Peter or whatever, he's speaking Parthian, and so the Parthians hear Parthian, or to them he's speaking Elamite, so the Elamites hear him speaking in his language. But I was convinced a few years ago that that's the wrong way to read the text, right? And by the way, you can learn new ways of interpreting the Bible, right? You don't have to just like stick in whatever it is that you thought several years ago. But I, I come to believe the miracle isn't in the speaking. It, it, it's actually in the hearing. The miracle happens in the ear. That is, Peter, he's kind of speaking, he's doing his thing, da-da-da-da-da, here's my sermon. And somehow in the midst of that proclamation, 
God is able to take those words, he's probably speaking Aramaic or Greek, and he's able to allow the Parthian person to hear Parthian. That the miracle is that the Elamite hears Elamite, that the the Mede hears me. The miracle of Pentecost is this, that those who hear the good news of Jesus are baptized in the faith, and it's a complete reversal of the Tower of Babel story. That's the miracle. Unlike the Tower of Babel, where it's unity through uniformity, Pentecost, when the Spirit of God falls on a place, it's unity, but diversity is not erased. Unity in Jesus does not erase the diversity of those who come to know him, come to a faith in him. If you fast forward just a little bit further down the Bible into the book of Revelation, John has this vision in chapter 7 where he writes these words. He says, after this, I looked and there was a great, he's, he's capturing this vision that he saw of everybody in heaven worshiping God. He says, after this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation from all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. The imagination of the Bible, again, is not just that, that Jews get to be redeemed by God. It's that, that God is redeeming all people, that he's redeeming every tribe, every language, every nation, And you get to the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 21, where the holy city of Jerusalem is made new. And just like in Isaiah 60, the nations come pouring into it. Everyone is drawn by the light and glory of God. And toward the end of that chapter, John writes these words. He says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there people will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. See, this picture of new creation, church, is not that we all speak the same language, all know the same songs, all love hymns, all eat the same foods. It's a picture of all cultures and ethnicity and nations and cultures, all people of the world. All of those things that have been God honoring in those places, they all get carried into eternity. There's this multiplicity of foods and music and all of this brings the glory, glory to God. What an amazing vision and imagination for what it means to be the people of God. So here's the question. If that's the picture that is supposed to shape our imagination, if that's a story we're living into, How are we supposed to live right now? So here's a sermon. (laughs) Now that we covered Genesis through Revelation 21, here's a sermon. Paul writes these words in Galatians chapter 3. He says, now, now, like right now, in Christ there is no difference between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Does that mean that there aren't males and females? No. Does that mean that there aren't the poor and the rich? No. Does it mean that there isn't economic and cultural and, and the national divisions? Of course not. But what it does mean is that now, 
right now, now, as a foretaste of that new Jerusalem of heaven coming to earth, that unity comes in the midst of all the diversity and multiplicity of God's people now in the church That unity is actually happening right now in the Spirit because we are filled with the Spirit. See, this is, okay, let me, I'm going to rant just for like a couple more minutes and we'll go, I promise, we'll wrap up here. This is one of my great struggles in the church today. It would have been unimaginable for Paul in the first century to say, man, you know what's really hard? Jews and Gentiles getting along with each other. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up a Jewish church and then we're going to set up a Gentile church and that'll be a whole lot easier. Paul can't imagine that because the actual symbol that represents that the Holy Spirit of God is present in the earth is that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and broke down those dividing walls that that separated people from one another and they find unity in Christ by the Spirit. I've read a lot about church growth in my years. There's a lot to know about church growth, but one of the, the, the primary principles of what we would call the church growth movement from like the 70s, 80s, and even continues today, is this principle known as the homogenous principle. And it basically states this. It says, all of us as people are generally most comfortable being around people who are like us. So the smartest thing that you can do as a church is for us to do here is to look around at our church here and we say, all right, what are the people that are like here? And we need to go and find other people who are like us and try and bring them to church. For lack of a better language, we need to market ourselves to people who are like us. And the reason why I detest and hate this principle is because it actually works. It works super well. We have churches in our town, here in our city, that are made up of a single generation of people. Here's our old person church. Here's our young person church. We have churches that are made up around race or ethnicity or language. There's Hispanic church. There's a white church. There's a Korean church. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those. It's a whole complicated history of how we even got there. We have churches that are made up of a single economic status of people. Yeah, this is where rich people go. I've heard stories of people here in our church who said, Yeah, we need to go be with people who are more of our socioeconomic class, and we're going to go to this other church. We have churches where it's like everyone has the same educational background. We're very like high church here, and we have degrees and stuff, and we're going to talk in fancy languages, or, oh, we don't deal with any of that sort of snootiness. Like, we don't want to learn anything. And we have within our own church, even here, just small groups of people. That you just hang out with like the people who are like you, right? We're just drawn to that. And the challenge is for our church, frankly, I don't know if we need the spirit of God to build that kind of church. See, what what the Tower of Babel story pictures, what, what Isaiah pictures, what Jesus envisioned, what Paul preaches, what Revelation says 
is that God is building a church that, that is so beyond something that you can do of your own power. You actually need the Holy Spirit to accomplish miraculously this thing that we call church. We're all invited to be that kind of people. Here's my last thing and then I'll be done. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. There's a lot of reasons to be a Nazarene. Amen? Amen. Come on. But the thing that sort of drew me in in many ways was the sort of network of people, you know, like I know this person and that person and we could do this seven degrees of separation in the Nazarene world. Like it's crazy. Once you're sort of once the church of Nazarene gets their hooks in you, it's like, you're done. Like, you're a part of us now. I'm really compelled by the message of holiness and the hopefulness that actually God can transform and change a person's heart and life. I love that our denomination started in Los Angeles, the church that did ministry to the poor, to drug dealers and prostitutes, to people who can pay a tithe. But one of the things that I've come to, to love about our denomination is that we are the largest Protestant denomination that has a global structure. That is, without getting into all of the polity, we have decided, probably by accident, (laughs) that somehow we are going to be a global church. And so we have these six general superintendents that are from all over the world, born in North America, South America, West Africa, and Europe. We make decisions collectively, and so when we have General Assembly next summer, it's going to be like the United Nations. we got to bring translators in, and they got the headphones. they got to speak the languages, and somehow we have to make decisions together, even though our cultures are, like, greatly different, and, like, we are just so, and it's frustrating, and it's hard, and it's messy, and Brian's laughing right now because he knows exactly what it's like to be a Nazarene in Africa and then to come here to Kansas or, you know, Missouri, and you're like, what is going on? But we have decided as a church that we are going to maintain unity despite our diversity. We're going to do the hard, messy work of being one. I want to be a part of that church. I'll leave you with this practically. You got to hang out with people in this place that are not like you, church. People who've been here for a really long time, you need to make an effort to befriend people who've been here for less than a year. Those of you who have been around, not just here in our church, but been on earth for a super long time, like not that there's a lot of you, but some of you, you need to come and befriend my son who's only been here for a few years. We need to be in each other's homes. We need to be in one another's lives. This is the vision of what happens when a church is filled with the Spirit of God. That's why I like going to the the prime timers, which I forgot to put in the bulletin, so talk to Elaine about that. And it's why I'd love for you to do it. It's why I love that that if the Tuesday morning Bible study could be many generations, it's why I hope that our home groups can be many generations, because we need to own the diversity of our church in unity. Amen? Amen? And the thing, I'll wrap up. I'm sorry. I've been preaching late. I'll tell you, there's a fire burning in my bones about all these sermons. That's why I preached so long recently. This is the vision of who we're going to become, of who we are becoming, of who God is making us, creating us, reshaping us by his grace to become. But the thing, the place where that happens, as, as Jesus says in our gospel text, 
is through the crucifixion of Jesus. That's why each week we come to this common table where we say, come poor, come rich. Come those who are holy, come those who are sinners. Come those who've been here for a long time, come those who are new. Because what happens is when we gather in the name of Jesus and the spirit of God is here, we are one. And we remind ourselves of that every single week. The crucified one breaks down all divisions by his grace. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the ushers because I got to apparently lead a song or something. I don't know. (laughs) I want to invite our ushers to come forward. They'll distribute the elements. And I invite you to hold on to those um, while we sing this next song. And I'll lead us through, uh, through our meal together.